Welcome to Trust the Journey. I'm Melanie Curtis. And I'm Jason Maletsky. Our mission is to live, laugh, love, and learn together with you. We're here to create conscious connections, to grow and contribute through our practice of openness, honesty, vulnerability, humility, and trust, trusting the entire journey. Amen. Team, family, if you want to find us on the internet, go to trustthejourney.today. You can join the Trust the Journey family by becoming a Patreon member. Uh, You can get swag, t-shirts, hoodies, just support the cause however you feel. And you can also subscribe on iTunes and all the places where, uh, well, not all the places, I guess, but iTunes and all, you know, subscribe to the podcast if you would like to get notified regularly. And yeah, that's it. Right on, right on. Thanks for being with us. So we are about to do our second episode in the reflection series, which we've just started, in which Melanie and I are reflecting and interviewing each other on our histories and our lives and diving deeper into some of our personal stories and the and the journeys that have brought us to who we are and where we are and why we are here today. Yeah, and this in this section or this particular episode, uh, you know, we're going to be focusing on a fairly significant chapter in my skydiving career and in my life. Uh, but before we do that, I have to acknowledge this is episode 50 for us. Like, Yay. talk about milestones. Yes. Exciting. I just wanted to take a minute to celebrate that because it feels like a cool milestone. You know, Definitely. we talk about, you know, you said it, I think, yesterday, making, like, it feels like we made our 50th jump. Exactly. <laughs> That's about noob. how experienced I think we feel still in podcasting. So... I just love that and I'm proud of us. And so just yay, a little congratulatory and celebratory moment. Absolutely. So um, I, I'm excited to hear your story because, you know, it's surprising and maybe a lot of our audience doesn't know this, but as much as we work together and we've spent the last couple of years producing this show and we've known each other for, gosh, a long time now, <laughs> right. I still don't know that like this our stories have been parallel yep. in a lot of ways we've crossed paths many a times but a lot of our deeper history is new to each other like we're really telling each other these stories for the first time so i am going to get to hear some more details along along with our audience about some of who who is Melsonor? Who is Melson? Does anybody know who this Melsonor person is? Because this is not who is sitting in front of me right now, and I want to know who's who's Melsonor. Oh my gosh, that's a that's a good question. That is uh, almost too much to to uh, share in one answer. So I'll do my best. But yeah, I mean, some of my friends still call me Melsonor. Uh, and it's if for people who have read my book, it's how I sign off my column or how I signed off my column for a long time and the column that I write in Blue Skies magazine because it was my nickname. So basically, when I left investment banking, so my, you know, did my first jumps and I became this investment banking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, and then my early years, the very, you know, beginning parts of my story is that, you know, I went to college, I did the very common path of you go to school and you get a job and that's it, you're on a trajectory. So I did that. And this is parallel to my love of skydiving. So I, my first jump was when I was 18. And I was one of those that was instantaneously addicted and in love, like, instantaneously in love and every a decision I made basically and I that's a bit of an overstatement because not it's not actually true but a majority of my decision making after that point was how to include skydiving in my life how could I do more of it etc given excuse me given I had that sort of upbringing of you go to college, you get a job, and I didn't really have access to the atypical life path idea yet. 
So I did that. I got a job in New York City working for an investment bank. I worked, and I love New York City. It was totally where I wanted to live after college. It was wonderful, but it was really hard to skydive there. And so, yeah, I mean, obviously you have to, you can't even have a car. So I, you know, took the bus up near the ranch and looked up in the ranch roundup. And by the way, the ranch roundup is basically a Facebook that was printed every year. That's telling you how old (laughs) this is like pre Facebook, pre social media. How did you stay in touch? They actually printed a book of faces and names and numbers so people could get in touch. So I looked through that and found the I basically called all the people in New York like uh, from the A's to B's until I found somebody that could help me get to the ranch. And uh, resourceful. What? You're resourceful. Yeah. And and what's so awesome about that, I mean, this is not part of Melsonore, but this is how how I get to to Skydive Elsinore in Southern California. But the person I called on the ranch who I ended up going up to like who helped me get there is still one of my best friends to this day, Stephen Baker. (laughs) And so it's just funny how life does that. But anyway, to get us to Southern California, I couldn't jump in New York and, and it's not a year round climate in the Northeast. I mean, some people jump year round here, but I'm not into that. I don't like jumping in the cold. And so I knew I needed to leave New York. And so I basically, long story short, with the investment banking thing, I was able to transfer with my job out to Southern California. So I worked at an investment bank for two more years out in Southern California, where I was basically spending all of my money getting good at skydiving, doing four-way formation skydiving, like getting coaching, doing wind tunnel training, get buying the gear, literally I didn't think for a second about any dollar I spent on skydiving during that time of my life. So, so that's where our stories are, are parallel. The, the first couple of years are just a, a well-paying job and dumping everything straight into skydiving yep. to build the foundation, getting the education, getting the equipment, getting the experience, building up that repertoire. So that's obvious, right? Like, so what, what I hear from my time in the sport is that when you see somebody who's doing that, um, if you're an experienced person who who jumps in the sport, those kind of people stick out. The ones who suddenly appear in the scene and then they put their nose to the grindstone, they make the investment of time, energy, money, they make their presence noticed just doing what they're doing. So I can imagine an 18 to 20 year old Melanie, how old were you when you got to Southern California? I was 22, I think, at that time. Awesome. Yeah, young. Full of pep. Young. I mean, when I got to Southern California, I mean, because I had lived in New York a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. So, So you're in Southern California. You're working Monday to Friday, nine to five. You've got the investment banker well not nine to five like five to because i was on new york hours in in california so i had this really early schedule which was helpful because basically uh, every single friday i would try to get out as quickly as i possibly could because i lived in la at this time as soon as the market would close i would try to finish up as much as i could and if i there was any part of how me being able to leave early it would really helped me get in front of the Friday afternoon traffic in Los Angeles because every weekend I drove to the drop zone. Every single weekend I was there. And I want to just make a note that my first team when I moved to Southern California, I did a four-way team at Skydive Paris. And that was great too. Uh, But what happened was Louis Shoney, who also is still one of my very best friends, he coached our team when one of our teammates like broke her leg. He filled in and she recovered quite quickly. I, I don't know if it was, it was clearly not that big of a deal. <laughs> it sounds like a big deal. Uh, but he coached us and we jumped at Elsinore, I think, for a day of training and coaching with him. And I just fell in love with Skydive Elsinore because of that day of training and working with Lou. He's hilarious. He's actually from Jersey, which is now where I live. <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, that's how I ended up going and starting to be a Skydive Elsinore local. Okay. So you become a local. You're now making some friends at the drop zone, jumping, training, uh, formation skydiving for purpose of competition because you like to improve your skills. So you join the team because in, as a beginner in skydiving, picking competition as the route to developing your skill set is, is the most uh, efficient way to become better at something is to have a coach, to have training objectives, to have goals in mind. Yeah, I didn't even think of that, to be truthful. I wasn't really? like, oh, I want to get good. I mean, I did want to get good, but I was like instantly obsessed with four-way. I was totally that person who really wanted to be on a team, really cared about meeting people where I could be on a team and doing everything that I could. So it was less about, and it was about wanting to be good, but it was mostly about being and doing this team experience. So the team experience for me was really, really amazingly fun and, and uh, magnetic. And I so, totally said in my younger years, I want to be a world champion, which that changes for me in my story. But that I'll tell you that as it comes up, I suppose. So I, I just want to relate for a second here. I know what the experience is like to like watch a video of something, right? And as you're you, I, something maybe you've never done or something you've just dabbled in and you go, I want to do that. And so when I, what I picturing here, and I want you to correct me or, or, you know, confirm if this is what I'm hearing. Yeah. You saw people doing four-way formation skydiving at a high level and aspired for that experience as the connective unit. Because it's, it, for anybody who doesn't skydive, who's listening to this, the, the synchronicity, the, the, it's like synchronized swimming in the sky, but a lot more aggressive and, but just as fluid and flowing and you have to have that like the teamwork it's all about the teamwork and it's all about everybody doing their job related to each other yeah so that i can see melanie being the people person that you are how that interconnectivity and alignment with everybody would really appeal to you yeah that love of four-way that spark was actually born before i moved to southern california at skydive cross keys so i was friends with seth carp who it was a member of Team Jetstream that was sponsored at Skydive Cross Keys at the time. And also being at the ranch as a young person, I would get to see RPM. So that's another team that was training at that time. They had matching suits, and I was the person who would get up in the morning and, and be like, hey, uh, can I can I stretch with you guys? Like really feeling super awkward, but really wanting to be a part of it, you know, that whole thing. And Seth, my he uh, basically helped me just get to be a part of it more. He included me, you know, like he was very kind and inclusive. We became very close friends as well. And I just started to really love four-way because of that. And I got to do my very first team experience ever at Skydive Cross Keys when on like a sort of a pickup team, but it was a like a girl's team that one of their people couldn't show up. So they asked me to do it. And I just, yeah, I was, yeah, insane since that moment. Okay. So back to Elsinore now. Mm -hmm. All right. We're in Southern California. You're in your early, early 20s, and you're working investment banking on New York hours, and every other minute is spent at the drop zone. <laughs> Correct. So, so how do we get from this enthusiastic uh, energy bomb of Melanie Curtis to Melsonor taking this sounds like you took over the drop zone when I, when I, <laughs> yeah, I know it's a nickname I resisted for a couple of years I'm not gonna be I mean I'm gonna be straight I I really I was did not dub myself that that was given to me and I was like ah no like it felt uh like braggy you know and so I was just very not into that but then it was one of those things I, as I grew in my own self I sort of was like can't beat them, join them, and just sort of chose to own it. And uh, But anyway, so yeah, it was this young, the way I describe it is that it was pure 
love and energy, like pure. It was an unstoppable force in me. As in, there were t- definitely, and I, this is part of the story that I like to not skip, but there were definitely people who made fun of me who were not that nice to me. Most people were cool and nice to me, but there were some some people who I think felt threatened or something by whatever force I was bringing, you know, and felt like maybe I would steal the spotlight or take their leadership role or whatever. But this this sort of began when so I'm doing four way and I'm a I'm being a competitor there and I've gotten these opportunities to be on better teams and it's I'm hustling and people are giving me a shot to do four way which is great and so I'm doing that and in conjunction with that I'm also beginning to step into being a coach and helping to coach young jumpers which by the way is still to this day one of my most favorite things to do in skydiving is to coach and mentor young skydivers. So the people who sort of ran that at the time were not were just kind of trying to put that energy down a little bit. And other people who were sort of cool kids and sky god t- types at that time were sort of doing similar things. It wasn't just directed at me, but it was like I was I felt that effect. And there were some instances where I felt that directly. And when I reflect as an older person with more experience and have seen my career evolve and I've lived my life as it has gone down, those experiences, I I look at them and I go, that's not cool, first first of all. Like I would, I'm not like that. That is not how I lead. That's not how I choose to lead by example or direct action. And they couldn't stop me. Like there's no no part of what like sort of negative effort came toward me was able to stop me because I was pure and authentically in love and and passion and joy that was very real from my being. And so that just sort of I just persisted. You know what I mean? I just persisted. And then eventually I did run that program. I ran that program with my other teammates. So at, over, as the years went on, I grew as a competitor and got you know better and better as a four-way FS competitor to the point where I was doing a full-time professionally sc- sponsored team. And so obviously there's a leaving investment banking type of, <laughs> there's a leaving investment banking story in there. But that's that trajectory felt unstoppable to me because of the pureness of the love that I had and the energy and willingness I was put willing to put into doing what I thought was just the joy in my life. So tell me a little bit about your perception here, because I'm curious to learn um, just about the the causation of this experience because i think everybody can identify with this kind of battle that we go through as younger people of in some way threatening the hierarchy or challenging some egos um, when you have a lot of enthusiasm a lot of love a lot of zest a lot of energy a lot of pop and you're bright and shiny uh especially if you're a girl you know and you're showing up in a man's world you know and you're self-confident um, do you feel like that you were threatening egos? Yeah, at, for sure. hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. And it was, they were all men. <laughs> Not to Sass. say that that's always the case because, you know, there, there are plenty of, uh, you know, people who I've been challenged by and, and both sexes. So it's not, I would say it's primarily men because of the percentage sort of difference of men to women in the sport of skydiving, which, by the way, right now in this day and age, we're working to change, which is an exciting part of my work today. Awesome. Okay, so so tell me about you at the time, okay? So let's go out of the four-way competitor aspiring jumper, and, and who are you at the end of the day when the beer light comes on and the jumping is done? What does your life look like? Who are your friends? When I when I run into you at the bar, who do I meet? 
Well, it wasn't a bar type scene at Skydive Elsinore. It was a bonfire. You know, we would have a cold one at the end of the day. You know, the whole, the very common skydiving culture was present there as a sort of local vibe. As in people would, once the jumping day was over, we would have some beers, we would hang around the bonfire, we would talk, we would laugh. You know, bigger events would be, you know, bigger parties. And, you know, there was definitely a party scene. And that just me being a young girl and a young person, I kind of came from the culture in Australia, learning and, and growing up as a young skydiver there. They had a, they have a very big drinking culture there. And uh, so, yeah, that was part of the culture was, you know, kind of a party girl, but you know, still focused on my skydiving goals. But because I had so much energy, I also had tons of energy for the community and for playing and and hanging out. Like I was the person who never really wanted to go home. You know what I mean? Like I really loved being there. Anything and everything skydiving was so energizing to me inclusive of the beers around the bonfire and the and the conversations that would take place and the just shenanigans that would go down that type of stuff so that was totally me i was immersed in every facet of skydiving life as much as i could so do you feel like um elsinore had this small drop zone vibe with it being still being a bigger drop zone with the bonfire scene in the evenings and stuff. Yeah, I do. I do. It always felt like a family there. It always felt, I mean, outside of the sort of exclusionary shares I just I just shared, that stuff really was minor. For the most part, it was this beautiful, wonderful, amazing vibe and I made amazing friends. So like my teammates just to name a few, Ryan Simpson, one of my longest running teammates ever. Uh, Louis Shoney, I mentioned him. Steve Seymour, Jonathan Tagle. He wasn't my teammate earlier on, but he was my te- my friend early on. We ended up living together for six years and became very close friends. Andy Melchiotti. You know, there's just tons of people I could list. Um, but with that collective, myself included, and this gets back to you like Melsonor, what's that about? Is that still waiting to hear? I want and to hear. I don't uh I I don't discredit the efforts and the impact of my individual self in that era, but I, I reflect on it and I think of it as like an era of like and when uh people from my Elsinore years reach out to me now. And it's it's the whole it was the whole community. There was this beautiful, just awesome, fun era where we were all jumping. We were all learning. I was coaching. People were learning from us. People were growing in in their own ways as a coach and a skydiver. Other people were doing four-way and and competing. We were partying our asses off, having a blast. You know, we were being stupid and just living this really incredibly electric time in all of our lives. And as a result, we ended up being super just close friends. And so when those people reach out to me now, I acknowledge that. Like we lived through some amazing, beautiful times together. And so that's how I really think about Skydive Elsinore is it feels in a lot of ways like my home drop zone. You know, like, yeah, I've I've feel senses of home other places, like obviously my dad's house and, you know, where I jump now. But Skydive Elsinore, for sure, for me is a is a is home is a home like real home because I feel like I grew up there in a huge way in skydiving, and the Melsonor thing is because I was running it, I was in charge. I ended up getting a job there, so I ended up leaving investment banking. My amateur four way FS team won the U.S. Nationals. Uh, 
in in in, in advanced. So the sure. pro the pro division is the open division for people listening. And the advanced division are for people call like who are weekend warriors. So people like me who had a job, could only train on weekends, but really were hustling and doing their best and still flying well, but no way could they compete at the professional level. So my team won and I was at this crossroads in the investment banking world where I was essentially an assistant to a stockbroker, but I was making great money. And I loved my boss. He was awesome. But I was becoming a person I didn't like in that environment. I started to snap at people. I dreaded going every single morning. Like it was in as a young person without the awareness of what that is, I, I was it was hard for me to figure that out. Like if I started feeling like that now in my elevated level of just personal development and consciousness, I'd be like, oh, okay, that's something's up there. I'm out of alignment. Something has to change. But in my young life, I, I didn't. It took me a bit. But I did acknowledge it. And so I had this experience of I either get an MBA and I go down the business route and I stay the investment banking course, right? I started studying for the GMAT, which is the test you need to pass to get in, into business school. And I also was like, either I'm happy with this level of what I've done in skydiving or, or not. And I really wasn't. And so I started reading this job search book called What Color Is Your Parachute? <laughs> That's Seriously? a very yeah. It's a it's a really well known job book, and I only bought it because parachute was in the title. Like no joke. Yeah. A book a question in that book changed my life, and the question was, what would you do if money were no object? And it was an immediate, obvious answer to me. It was skydiving. If money were no object, what would you do in your life? Skydiving. Instantaneous answer, and then almost. As almost as instantaneous as that answer came to me, the reasons why I couldn't do it were right there to block me. So it was, what would you do if money were no object? Skydiving. But I don't want to live in the tr in a trailer on the drop zone. I don't want to eat ramen noodles for my life. I don't want, you know, I this is a lifestyle I've become accustomed to. Whatever, because that answer came to me so instantly, I was like, wait a second. And so I started to go, I started to take my, those walls on your awareness and I started to just like slowly open them up like, and I started to go, well, there that person's a professional skydiver and they have a house and they don't live in a trailer on the drop zone eating ramen noodles. And I allowed myself just to imagine the, the possibility that I could be a professional skydiver, work in skydiving, and not have to do it in the way that I had thought it had to be done. Like by being entirely broke, entirely just paycheck to paycheck, no food, like scarcity. That was just not something I wanted. And so anyway, from there, then basically I worked with Skydive Elsinore to, I essentially pitched the role of Melsinore to them. And because I saw that that gap that they needed. And I was like, I can come in and be the person who sort of runs the experience side of the drop zone and, you know, leads the programs and this and that. And so I basically eight months from that moment of of inspiration, it was eight more months of prepping and planning for my departure from investment banking so that I would pay off my car. Like I'm a, I'm a quite a responsible decision maker. I don't really recklessly choose, but I try my best to bravely choose. You know what I mean? And so that eight month prep set me up for leaving investment banking in a really safe way. 
And it allowed me to step into this role at Skydive Elsinore doing the events and marketing there that really set me on my path to becoming, quote unquote, Melsinore and just rising in the sport in the way that I have. Awesome. It's really interesting to hear how you were able to make a vision for yourself that included being comfortable and having a lifestyle that that meet a certain standard because I mean from my own experience and from seeing that of many others the the norm per se is that you sacrifice in so many areas in order to thrive in one and it's surprising to hear that from you because especially with the cost of living in Southern California and coming from a lifestyle that included a, a healthy income level and going to a industry where you really need to carve out a niche for yourself in order to have a, a solid, you know, a solid income. Otherwise, it's pretty low income for the majority of the participants. Like anybody who's full time in the industry, I'll just fill in the gap for our listenership a little bit. The the majority of the full-time workers or part-time workers in the industry are instructors or parachute packers. Um, those are probably the two main roles, videographers. So you're, you're managing the student experience. You're dealing with first-time jumpers who are coming to the drop zone. You're helping them to go for their first jump by doing tandems, or you're taking them for AFF jumps, or you're shooting videos or pictures of them, or you're packing parachutes for them. It's almost all about the first-timer business. And those first-timers keep they fuel the industry in the sport side of skydiving and there's also a military side to the industry and some people will veer down a path that leads them towards working in that side if they have a history or a background that or a personality set that sets them up for that um, so i can see how your personality and your your outgoing nature and you you look at it and say, hey, there's a there's a window here. There's a there's something that I fit that is me, and that is the experience of hi, welcome to the drop zone. Are you making your first jump today? Let me walk you through that from A to from A to Z, right? <laughs> that was a hundred percent me. And and one of the key ten core tenets of that is that I love people. I love people, and that was super apparent and i love skydivers you know for the most part yeah so there are some jerks in the world but for the most part i i love i love people and i love skydivers and it was super easy for me and i say easy i don't want to again i don't want to underplay it because i definitely had to grow into this but it's true that was kind of the joke as well is that anybody knew on the drop zone i would walk over, hand out stretched, and make them feel welcome. Be like, hey, what's your name? I don't think I know you, or we don't know each other. Or, you know, hey, I'm Mel, how are you? Like, what's up, you wanna go jump? And that was another beautiful thing about how I worked at Skydive Elsinore is that I, and this was also by design in my mind, is that I knew that if I had to pay for skydives, I would be limited in what I could do and how I could, how much I could impact the people in our local community. So in our local Skydive Elsinore family. And so I was a fully sponsored jumper there. That was part of the deal of me working there. And that freedom allowed me to basically just be me and do whatever I wanted, which it was rooted in this highly inclusive, loving energy. And so when I walked up to someone with my hand outstretched and asked them to go jump with me, I meant it. It wasn't that I was trying to just do my job because now I work there and I had to include people. It was, that goes back to the purity of who I was then and am still today, but but meaning that's why, in my view, I believe I became an, a thing, is that it's undeniable when we meet people like that who are pure of heart, who are earnest and authentic without, like, really without agenda, 
other than trying to allow someone to feel welcome and feel free to make a choice. Because like when I ask someone to jump, I would never care if they didn't want to. You're like, do you want to go jump? Are you cool? Do you need to meet an organizer? You're like, how can I help you feel more taken care of? You know, how can I help you feel more welcome and included? So anyway, that that's a big part of, of Melsonor. And that translated also into how I ran the events as well. And so one of the beliefs that I always carried and the the events that we ran there became large events. So they sort of, you know, we in this collective, in this amazing energy of inclusion and fun and nonsense and skill building and learning, right? So there's some some of those core tenants that are just so fucking attractive and fun to be a part of and cool to be a part of. And those things, we would spend months and months organizing these big events. And then I would go to myself, say to myself, once it was the time for the event, if I was having fun, everyone else would have license to have fun. So I made it, it was very, very rigorously connected to that. So Chicks Rock Boogie is one of the biggest events that we ran at Skydive Elsinore. It's still happening today. And what's so cool is that I'm going, if, I mean, gosh, praying the COVID stuff doesn't keep it from happening, but it's their 20 year, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was just, I was just going to ask you, I was just going to ask you what year was the first year? Because I think that I was there the first year (laughs) and I was recalling, I'm like, I'm pretty sure I was there the first year. And following a number of years after that, um, it's awesome. I was going to ask you about that. So I, I, let me let me let's stop us for a second. So sure, sure. I want to take a moment and just reflect on something which you are probably aware of because you're quite tuned into who you are as a person. But what I heard you say, and as I listen to your descriptions and your stories about the way that you introduce yourself and and make somebody feel welcome and basically hold space for them. You create space for a new person arriving into an environment, which can be full of all kinds of personalities and full of scary things. It can be very, it can be very scary to go somewhere that you don't know anything about. And there's all people are jumping out of planes. I mean, that's a scary thing for people to do if you don't already do that. And even if you do do that, it can still be scary. So I hear Melanie Curtis as Melsonor, as the person who makes it hold space for people to find their way through a fearful experience. And now MelanieCurtis.com <laughs> does the same thing. Right. I exactly see a, right. I, a matured version where you've taken it out of the context of I can do this for people in skydiving to... I can do this for people in their lives. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it is beautiful. It really is beautiful. And, and I, the, the reason, one of the reasons I would always resist the, the nickname Melsonor is that I didn't ever want the broader team to be unacknowledged because as you well know, as we both well know, it is a team effort. And that's what's so cool is that, yeah, there were some toxic people in the Scott of Elsinore, Elsinore leadership, but the the people who were not toxic, the people who were good and awesome were good and awesome. Like we're so good and awesome. And so that, and that's what's so cool about this year is that They've had some changes and some really healthy, positive changes there, which makes me really happy. And I love that I get to be reconnected with them and uh, and be a part of this 20-year uh, event this year. But And just to share as well, pe- some people think I started Chicks Rock, which I did not. It began in the year 2000. The first year that I attended was 2004, because that's when I first was now in Southern California. And then I was leading it and sort of helping organize it the next year in 2005. And then I was really sort of fully running it, not running it, but like with the team spearheading the leadership of the event from 2006 forward. And uh, 
And it was this awesome, beautiful, fun ass thing. And it just, the magnetism of that energy of the whole Skydive Elsinore collective, the whole local community, all of what we were getting up to, that became very magnetic in the broader skydiving community as well. And so like, as I moved forward as a coach and trying to help people and educate in different ways in skydiving as a broader sport, I would go back and sort of pick pick out like, why did that happen? Like, what was so magnetic about those things? You know, and and really think about what it was like to be having so much fun, to be helping people and supporting people, to having this inclusive vibe, but also having this really fun and ridiculous vibe, and also having this in intense commitment of course to safety and this intense commitment to learning as we can as we can as well so it's just this license for people to find their own way to feel free you know what i mean so whether it's i feel free because i'm included in a social collective that likes me or whether it's i feel free because i can jump out of this cool airplane or whether it's i feel free because i can dress up in a stupid costume at night and be a different person and those the theme parties was also a big thread of of skydive elsinore like sort of we really ramped that up with Chicks Rock and the events that we did. We really said, this is an opportunity to make these events that much cooler and more fun for people. And so we did that. And I always said, you you just have to give people things to say yes to. And so instead of waiting for other people to create things, we created things. We said, what can we do? What can we create and give people to op- these opportunities to say yes to. Very cool. Uh, I want to change pace a little bit. Yeah. I want to dive into a little more personal um, relationship. And um, I want you to tell me uh, about uh, a mutual friend of ours who I've shared many of um, hilarity experiences deep (laughs) deep conversations really like diving into who we are and where we come from and just and and so i I wanted you to tell me about andy malchiotti and your (laughs) relationship there and that friendship because i've really thoroughly enjoyed the times that i've spent with him and they've been unique and he's such a character and so please fill me in a little bit oh gosh yeah andy's wonderful he is, we're still so close today. And uh, yeah, Andy's, Andy was definitely part of the, you know, the collective, the running of the energy, the fun electricity going on. One of the funny things about Andy is that he's a former porn director. And so there was always this sort of sexual tone with Andy. And uh, everybody who knows him knows this about him. So this is not, I'm not breaking any confidence by sharing about him like this. And uh, yeah, we would just, again, we were free to talk about literally whatever, anything, you know, and he lived this unconventional lifestyle to me. And I'm this young person who's sort of trying to figure it out and partying it up and dating people and, you know, doing my thing. And one of the, one of the marked conversations with Andy is, and this is how I know we were real friends, is that in my own personal journey of being sort of like partying and and still doing my thing, and, and I say partying loosely, I just mean drinking and, you know, just being stupid and making bad decisions and also making ridiculous memories you'd never trade. So there's lots of uh, that goes into that description. Um, but I, I reached this point where I was like, I want to have a boyfriend. Like, I don't want to just go and drink and and maybe hang out and maybe, you know what I mean, maybe like hook up with someone. That is just, I was really clear that I was sort of done with that. And I remember this conversation Andy and I had in his team room where I was like, I just, I said that to him, like, I don't, I'm like, I'm not, no. Like, (laughs) 
like I want to have a boyfriend you know <laughs> like and he, we were just talking about it because he was not on that path like he was a you know sort of very open person at that time in his life and and I was able to share with him a very divergent thought and I just r always loved how he supported me in that moment and even though it was very divergent from how he lived his life and what he thought in terms of relationship and romantic connection. And so I just love that. I mean, this on top of everything else that we've done as skydivers and stuff like that. But Andy even wrote me a song when I left Skydive Elsinore, which oh, I could cry thinking about it. Oh, my gosh, that's beautiful. It's called Melsinore, of course. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to chase it down and figure out a way to share it on the Internet. So, tell, I mean, one of the fantastic things about um, this particular journey, uh, the skydiving experience, is the community, right? It's a highly bonded experiential community. It's based in a, a shared experience that is life-threatening. So it, it puts us all in a state of mind of like wow we all are doing something that is really ties us together and it brings together a certain level of connection a certain level of respect a certain amount of brother and sisterhood for every anybody i mean and that's i think i think what i see is that you feel that and recognize that that any person who walks into a drop zone to make their first jump is joining that club with even their very first showing up right doesn't matter if you've done it 10,000 times or one time you've shown up and said I'm going to face this fear in myself and and that brings you into the community and the community side of things really is something that appeals to to Melanie she's very connected she's very people person so how did that end up serving you and how did it end up bringing you to where you are today like give me a little bit more of the backstory on how that that experiential growth in, in your time there walked you down your path yeah i've shared about this in other forums about how there's so much power in supporting someone who is in a challenge there and and I say that very broadly. So if we think about it in terms of skydiving is that as young jumper those people who are new to this community who are maybe like me or you wildly excited, really wanting to be a part of it, there's a a massive beautiful, positive, emotional opportunity there, that if you su can support that person and help them feel included, and you can support that person and help them to get onto a path that inspires them and motivates them and empowers them for themselves, right? That is, I don't know about you, but I think about the people when I was a young jumper who supported me, and I am like forever freaking loyal to those people because they were there for me in a time when I really needed them and didn't even know it. You know what I mean? And so basically I did that uh, sort of unbeknownst to, to me. This is again sort of only in reflecting, can I pick this apart? But at the time I was just doing it and including and loving people and helping them succeed and find their own path, right? While doing it myself while trying to do it myself. And what I see down the road is that the power in those connections. And so I gave a talk, I mean, this is a few years ago now at the, at the PIA, Parachute Industry Association Symposium, at the Drop Zone Owners Day that USPA holds. And the USPA is the United States Parachute Association for people who don't know. And I talked about young jumper retention and young jumper and I talked about this power of that 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 power of when a person 
when we're in that that state and in that period of a, of growth or or need, then there's just so much power there. You know, I mean, I feel like I have so now my community, my my audience, as it were, if you put it in social media terms and and personal brand terms, which I don't honestly like to do, but it's just very very strong. People it, it, uh, were bonded. I got to interject for a second though, because I feel like it's worthy of mention that the whole concept of audience or reach is it can be used in two ways, right? It can be used positively or negatively. You can leverage your audience through injecting love and passion and care and empathy and all these things into space into the collective consciousness or you can use it to feed your own ego and yep. use it as a tool for power and 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 all the, the negative uses so i just want to remind you even though it, i heard you reflect on like i don't like to refer it to that way we use it for the right way we use it for the wrong way and yeah. in no time have I, do i ever see you using it for the wrong way so please yeah, feel comfortable you. to hold an audience melanie thank you yeah. And so it's it, to get back to really answering your question directly, it is impi- it has impacted my life beyond those Skydive Elsinore days hugely. 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 Because what did I do? I earned people's trust back then by being love, by loving people earnestly and authentically and without agenda and without attachment, right? Do I need you to jump with me? No. Are you cool? Do I need you to do any do I need you to keep coming here? No. Do I you know, do I want you to keep coming here? Yeah. Do I want you do I want to go jump with you if you want to? Yeah. You know, it's like that's such a microcosm of a bigger message and I've seen that at work and I've in growing as a person and growing in my consciousness and awareness of that power, I choose to use that power now in my life. I see someone, you know, and again, I'm, I have awareness of my own bandwidth. I have my own boundaries. So it's not about this exhaustive, I'm going to love everybody and I'm going to be there for every single person in the world. I'll try as much as I can. You know, that's why I create and I write and I make videos is that I feel like I can get that type of support and energy and love to a broader audience, to more people, you know? But in terms of the one-on-one interactions, that's really how I try to think about it and I and what I try to embody because I believe in that power of love. I believe in that power of acceptance and holding space for people to feel free to be who they are and to choose what's right for them. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, yeah. It's real. And that's obviously why I'm a life coach. It's 100% why I'm a life coach, like you were saying. It's just an extension of that to allow people into a deeper space. That's all. It's such an interesting um, reflection relationship. Um, I can relate back to my own experience. And some people know, some people don't. I mean, I spent quite a number of years doing uh, tandems, taking people for their first jumps when I was younger in the sport and younger in years. And I loved it. I I loved it. It it was never something I put as a list on my goals of things I wanted to do. It just fell in my lap. And one of my friend, Sean, who we talked about the other day, walked literally by the hand. He's like, here, you got to go do this. You know, and I'm like, oh, okay. And I loved taking people up and doing their, and having that, hi, how you doing? Let me, nice to meet you. Let me make you feel comfortable. Yeah. Right. Let me help you through this experience um, and help you walk your path. So it's beautiful. And I see how that has affected us, you know, as we've grown as individuals. So speaking of walking and walking our paths and journeys, there's a couple notes that I've got written down and I want to hear your take on them one of them is about you running and the other is, is about, about what? you. It, one of them is about you running and the other one is about you walking okay yeah and both of them are, are the one time when you're running across the drop zone oh yeah <laughs> and the other one is walking across the drop zone uh, in a moment of realization yes. yes i will tell both of these stories 
before I do that, I just don't want to forget to acknowledge Carl and Daniela because they are also beautiful, wonderful people in my Skydive Elsinore story and life. And I'm so grateful for them still today. So I just didn't want to forget or not have their names be on this podcast because they're beautiful and wonderful. Uh, cool. So <laughs> the first story. So I would, because I was running the place, I would joke that I would, uh, and I running the place, I, I mean that meaning running the, running the experience side of the drop zone is what I meant. Uh, I would joke that I could not get across the drop zone without people stopping me, which is a great thing. This, that was never a problem for me. But I then also had, oh God, I gotta go to the bathroom or I have to get this done or I have to, you know, I had all these things. So one of my ways to expedite getting across the drop zone and not being interrupted as I would run across the drop zone. So I could still say hi to everyone, but it was clear that I couldn't stop. <laughs> Which just sounds so weird. So one day, and I'm just in this habit of running across the drop zone. So even during the week when very few people were there, I would still sort of just be, if I was out on the DZ and not in the office, I would run across the drop zone. So one day, no one's there and i'm for whatever reason running up to the bathroom or something and there's the driveway of skydive elsinore is this gravel driveway and i'm running up to the bathroom and i just i fucking trip like hardcore fully go down like grooves in the in the you know gravel and I am flat on my fucking face and it is I, I'm like literally on my belly in the grooves of the gravel that I just made and I'm looking around and I'm hoping somebody saw me because it was such an epic amazing fall that I was like please tell me somebody saw that and sad to say, nobody saw it. But what I then did is I was like, shit, you guys, I brought people from the office out and I described to them this epic fall. Because I'm like, this was so amazing, this fall. I brought them out and I showed them the grooves in the, in the gravel. I'm like, guys, I went down hard, like crazy. It was amazing. And... I just, that story to me is relevant to not caring about looking stupid. Like there was a, a, a sort of piece of really being and, and being a leader and being willing to look stupid. Like that was another sort of tone at Skydive Elsinore is that we were a sort of ridiculous group of characters. And so like, you know me now, I am still that way. The f stupid, funny movies, the this and that, like that tenant of nonsense and hilarity is powerful. It's fun. And it's good to lead by that example. And so when nobody saw me fall flat on my fucking face, I was like, I want people to know. <laughs> this is hilarious. We had a rule <gasps> in the PD factory team where every once in a while, there's this horrendous error that everybody makes where you level off way too soon and you're just airballing across the entire course. And it doesn't matter how cool you are when you're doing it right. When you're doing it like that, you look dumb and goofy and hilarious. And so we had a rule for everybody on the team that when you do that, you had to be, make a big starfish shape so that you're like, hey, everybody, look at me. I'm totally screwing up right now. In order for everybody to own that, yeah, we all screw up sometimes. I love it. And, and look at me while I'm doing love it. it. Yeah. One time I was putting my gear on in the loading area, trying to look cool. This is no joke. I tell I tell students this all the time, young people all the time. I tried to like cool, like put it on my shoulders and then try to put my foot in after and like swing it around my leg. It caught on my ankle. Like hop, hop, hop on one leg, down in front of everybody in the loading area. Literally. Never again have I I've put my gear on like a student. The rest I, I for ten thousand jumps I've put my gear on like a student. 
<laughs> because of falling on my face. All right, so we're so, we're about to wrap up the episode. Yeah. So I want to hear your story of realization. Yeah, yeah. And so this is zone. this gets us to basically how I ended up end up leaving Scott of Elsinore. And part of that is, and I mentioned the toxic leadership. Part of that was because that toxic leadership was so bad that I made efforts, I made every effort possible to sort of make change in that in that leadership. And be, when that didn't happen, I chose to leave. But so I just want people to understand that because I briefly mentioned it, but that was that was a part of it as well, of part of why I left Scott of Elsinore was because of that. But the positive reason and the inspired and empowered reason is that so this is a moment I will literally never forget. Ironically, it is the same gravel driveway, this time walking across it. And I basically had this intuitive moment. So I'm walking across this the drop the drop zone, I'm walking across the driveway and it and it hits me that I'm I love everything that I'm doing. I have the best job in skydiving. I'm really happy, and I just knew that if that was all that I did, I knew I wouldn't be happy. And so I I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know where it was going to take me. It was barely a flex of my mind, but it was an intuitive hit. It wasn't like a Mack truck moment. It was a like, I'm fucking lucky I, I listened. So it was a small tickle in the mind where where my intuition was basically saying, "Hey, let's just pay attention a little more." And and so I listened. I listened to that and I was like, "Well, wow. I am I'm I am really happy. Well, what if I didn't do this, what what would I do? You know, I'm kind of living my dream as it were." So if you could place where that thought lived, like in what part of your body, was it in the front of your mind, the back of your mind? Was it in your belly? Was it in your, where did the thought originate? I'm curious. <laughs> Little zoom. Uh, so you're where, where was it placed? Where did the, where did the, this, this tickle? You see, describe. So the reason why I'm asking this question is, and for our audience' sake, is this these little these little things are really really important, right? Yeah. These are the thoughts that change our lives. Really so important. Where did it originate? What? Where did it bubble up from? Could you locate I really it? Feel, yeah, I feel like it was in my in my mind. It was it was sort of in in the center of my. It didn't feel like a cognitive thought. It felt like it, and I feel like there was, it definitely, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to say because I can't say I've reflected on that too too much deeply over the years, but I would say it was in my, in my mind, in my head, and, and reflected in my body. But it wasn't like I felt goosebumps all over my body, but it was a knowing. It was an intuitive knowing. Hundred percent, and so even though it was really small, because I was very engaged and very fulfilled doing certain things, doing that job there, I loved it. I really loved it, and because I listened, I started on this other this this brand new reflective journey. This brand new, well, what do I like? What am I good at? If I didn't do this, what would I do? And I did a bunch of brainstorming. I wrote down a lot of ideas and I basically wrote down what a life coach was without even knowing that life coaches were a thing. Like life coaching back then was not as even remotely as accepted as it is now. And so I started doing research on things and I found life coaching and I was like, Ugh, life coaching. What? No. I was like, so not. No. Thought it was really, like, totally thought it was really either uncool or a complete scam. I thought it was bullshit. And 
because of that intuitive knowing in that moment walking across the driveway that I just so happened to luckily listen to, I said, Ugh, okay, either this is a total scam and complete bullshit, or it's a part of my calling. Ugh, like sort of annoyed that I had to like, I had to sort of chase down this, this, this direction. And obviously, ultimately, one of my skydiving friends had attended the program that I was most resonating with and thinking, and I, she was able to confirm for me that life coaching, yeah, it's real, it's legit, totally. And so when she was able to confirm it, I then had this experience of, I have this deep calling in me that this is the right thing for me to do. And on my birthday, 2008, I swiped my credit card for $8,000 I did not have. And it felt not scary at all. It felt as soon as I, even though I didn't have that eight grand, I had no idea how I was gonna get it. But I knew that that was the right next thing for me was to go to this life coaching school. And to be continued. (laughs) Thank you very much for your sharing today, Melanie. It's really insightful to hear the deeper reasoning and the thoughts and the the stories behind things. And I love being able to reflect and relate to your journey. And I'm sure that our audience feels the same way. So thank you very much for creating the space for us to be able to share and for be sharing within it. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks to all of our listeners who are, are follow us and who subscribe and who share and who are just awesome people. We love you so much. Yeah, guys, for reals. I mean, trust the journey, I think, is not embodied any better than in these interview episodes where we're trying to share and dissect our lives and our journeys and really take the value from those and share them with you. So thank you all for listening to all of this and letting me do my best to open up, you know, and and I that's the thing is that I don't feel very I don't feel that great at doing this. You know what I mean? Like, I don't feel that good at this type of episode, but I'm I'm happy to be in that work with you, Jay, and with you, family. And I'm really honored for the space that you're holding for us to do this with you. So on that note, (laughs) keep laughing, keep loving and keep trusting the journey. Amen. (laughs) 